Hi, I'm Scott Johnston, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about what we call evidence-based coaching. But a good subtitle might be, Did Isaac Newton Invent Gravity? I'll, I'll explain that subtitle shortly. We at Uphill Athlete are sometimes asked for scientific studies that support one of our training methodologies. From time to time, I have to explain to people that, to my knowledge, such studies don't even exist. At best, this engenders a disappointed sigh. At worst, it can end up with a confrontation. This talk is about how we acquire the evidence we use for coaching. Does it come from the realm of sports science or from the realm of coaching experience? My talk today is definitely not intended to denigrate sports science. Sports science provides an invaluable intellectual framework upon which we can build a better understanding of applying our coaching methodologies. But it might surprise many of you to learn that coaches, and by this I mean the, the whole collective uh, knowledge base of coaches, tend by a, by a large margin to actually lead the scientists when it comes to developing the best training methods. How can that be? Well, during the next few minutes, I hope I can justify that statement to you. Let me start by posing a question. Did Isaac Newton invent or discover gravity? Of course, the answer is no. While he quantified it and allowed better predictive modeling with his famous universal law of gravitation, people had known about the effects of gravity for tens of thousands of years. Geez, you, you drop stuff, it falls to the ground. Galileo understood well the effects of gravity from his empirical observations during his famous Leaning Tower of Pisa experiments. His trial and error methods, combined with careful observations, allowed him to predict the effects of gravity even without the knowledge of Newton's yet-to-be-discovered law. Coaching's collective knowledge accumulates over many decades, with thousands of coaches doing trial and error experiments on millions of athletes. The ideas get tested in the most critical laboratory in the world, the competition arena where the stopwatch is the ultimate arbiter of success or failure. Over decades, this becomes an evolutionary process, wherein the good ideas survive and the bad ideas die off. At some point, sports science comes along and at some later date and quote-unquote proves why or how such a training method or training process that coaches have been using does what it does. When the study finally makes its way into the popular press, in the mind of the public, science has therefore discovered gravity. In contrast to this messy, seemingly chaotic trial and error method used by coaches, sports science is carefully planned, usually within a laboratory environment under very controlled conditions. After all, science is about accurately determining, determining cause and effect. So out of necessity, the real-world mess must be eliminated so that the signal can be discerned above the noise. However, this imposes certain constraints on the applicability of some of these studies. For one, most studies are short-term, lasting only a few weeks. This is out of necessity. It's hard to find test subjects willing to take part in a long-term study. But athletes train for months and years continuously and often with a progression that looks nothing like these short studies. As well, many of these studies are, use students as test subjects who may be active but are not endurance trained. This is also out of necessity because most labs are associated with universities 
and it's hard to find well-trained athletes willing to shift their training to be part of a study. Frequently, many of these studies examine just one or two effects that result from the training intervention being used in the study. This too is out of necessity because the response to training is incredibly complex and the scientists must isolate some factors in order to see how training affects those particular uh, factors. Related to this point, many studies don't even directly measure performance. They measure a proxy for performance. They might notice that a certain gene associated with mitochondrial biogenesis is upregulated during the studied training intervention. Well, that should cause an increase in aerobic capacity, which should lead to improved performance. But human performance depends on an incredibly complex mix of factors. And while it's useful to see the isolated effects, ultimately, performance is what the coach and the athlete are interested in. Finally, many studies get exposure in non-academic literature and get misinterpreted and often taken out of context. Well, here's a few examples of studies that contain some of these issues. I was a subject in a study back around 1973 while I was living and training at the U.S. Olympic Center in Colorado Springs. This study was designed to examine the difference in aerobic capacity between high-level competitive swimmers and high-level wrestlers. The single marker that they were evaluating was a protein called cytochrome C that is involved in the electron transport chain inside the mitochondria. The question was, would cytochrome, C's incre cytochrome C levels increase more and faster with wrestling training that is comprised mainly of short, high-intensity bursts of work, or in swimmers doing a high volume of low to moderate-intensity aerobic training? more cytochrome C should indicate an increase in aerobic capacity. So in this case, the study cytochrome C was used as a proxy for overall aerobic capacity, even though aerobic capacity is, is a result of many, many other factors. In, in the 1990s, a Norwegian researcher named Jan Helgerud found that doing an interval session two times a week that involved four by four minutes at 90 to 95% of the maximum heart rate, with a three-minute active rest between each repetition, would increase the max VO2 of the subject by about one-half a percent each week. He tested this on cardiac patients, for people who had had recent cardiac episodes like heart attacks and that sort of thing, as well as some soccer players. He took that the results of this study, and based on it, he boldly proclaimed that his results proved that elite endurance athletes, athletes were wasting their time with long-duration, low-intensity training because it didn't affect their max VO2 much. He heavily influenced several cross-country ski coaches who adopted his ideas, which flew in the face of traditional training methods for cross-country skiing. The results were disastrous for several top skiers who had poor racing seasons and had to return to their normal training, the old traditional training methods where they once again were able to find success. The assumption was that max VO2 was the predominant determinant of racing performance, but actually that didn't prove to be true at all in the real world. In 1996, Izumi Tabata and some colleagues conducted a test that showed four minutes of 20 seconds maximum effort sprints interspersed with 10 seconds rest done five days a week gave a boost of about 15% in the test subject's max VO2 over a six-week period. 
Well, you could imagine what happened then. The fitness industry quickly latched onto this. Now there's an entire new genre of Tabata workouts claiming to be some sort of shortcut to fitness. In these last two example studies, it pays to keep in mind that MaxVO2 is what is known as a first wave response to exercise. That means that when people first begin to exercise, especially when they've not done a recent, <clears throat> done much recent high intensity aerobic training, MaxVO2 will be one of the first things to respond. The fitter the athlete or the longer the training history with high intensity work, the smaller will be the response. The young, the untrained, will see significant jumps in their MaxVO2, but that will also plateau after a few months. If you want some more information about this subject, you might want to read the MaxVO2 myth article that's posted on the Uphill Athlete website, which is linked to we're linked below, um, you'll be able to find the link there. From these few examples, I hope you can see how easy it is for studies to, to mislead all but the most careful readers. I want to reiterate, there is nothing inherently wrong with these studies. Almost all are conducted with great care, and many provide useful information to sports science. However, in endurance sports, we are concerned exclusively with performance, what improves it and what does not. Of less interest is why it improves or not. This is where that collective coach, coaching knowledge really shows its worth. As mentioned at the beginning, we're sometimes asked about things like our, the concept of aerobic deficiency or what we term aerobic deficiency syndrome. There's nothing in literature of sports science about this, so it must not exist, right? Well, not, not so fast. The collective coaching knowledge provides ample evidence to support this concept and actually give guidance on how to determine and correct it. Check out the Aerobic Base podcast where I do a deep dive into that topic. We've gained our coaching knowledge through years of on-the-ground coaching of hundreds of athletes from Olympians to the elite alpinist who seek to perform at the very highest levels to, to amateur athletes looking for more modest personal improvements. We've supplemented this personal experience with decades studying some of the most successful coaches in the more conventional endurance sports. I hope you can see from this talk why we should prioritize coaching best practices to help guide our training and use sports science to explain why or how. We've spent a huge amount of time and ink explaining the most successful coach evolved training methods on our web website uphillathlete.com. Please take some time to read the many articles on our site and look through our books, uh, Training for the New Alpinism and Training for the Uphill Athlete, to learn more. I look forward to talking to you soon.